Hey everybody, this is Joel. Uh, this is just a quick heads up that the audio quality on today's episode of Track by Track Presents Trout Mask Replica is a little rougher than on some of the other episodes. I recorded this one fairly early on. I recorded it using Skype. Didn't really fully know what I was doing. Darren has done a great job cleaning up the tracks, but it's still a little rough compared to some of the other episodes. Uh, so my apologies for that. But it is a great conversation with Bret Hart uh, regarding Veterans Day Poppy, last song on the album. A thick cloud called a Papa Cub's tail, a match struck blue. We got my mobile bottle. slipped on his wooden fish head. The mouth worked and snapped all the bees back to the bungalow. Like I, like I buy your Veterans Day poppy. It don't get me high. Hello, and welcome to Track by Track Presents Trout Mask Replica. My name is Joel Bacher. I'm guest hosting for Darren Husted for uh, the last episode. Uh, as we go th- track by track through Captain Beefheart and his magic band's legendary epical, unique, one-of-a-kind, any synonym you can think of for exceptional 1969 double album, Trout Mask Replica. Today we are discussing Veterans Day Poppy. This is the final song on the album, track 28, You Made It. Uh, This song, along with Moonlight on Vermont, was recorded uh, prior to the other tracks on the album. It was recorded in 1968 in Sunset Sound Recorders. Slightly different incarnation of the Magic Band plays on this than on the other tracks on the album that has uh, Bill Harkelroad on guitar, a.k.a. Zutorn Rollo, Jeff Cotton, a.k.a. Antenna Jimmy Siemens on guitar, Gary Magic Marker on bass rather than Mark Boston, John French, a.k.a. Drumbo on drums, and of course Don Van Vliet, a.k.a. Captain Beefheart on vocals. Uh, this track is four minutes and 31 seconds long. Uh, and my guest today is a member of the Moon Men, the band The Moon Men, Brett Hart. Brett, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, it's fun to be here. Ben Waters, who was on previous episode, uh, put me in touch with Mr. Hart, who is a, a lifelong musician and fan of, of Beefheart. So I, I have to ask, um, when did you first hear Captain Beefheart? And what was it that, how, how did you come to find this music? I saw Trout Mask when I was a kid uh, in Friends' older brother's record collections, but it kind of was alarming to me just looking at it, uh, much in the same way that the first few uh, Mothers of Invention records <laughs> kind of pushed the envelope with commerciality. You know, the cover was, uh, you know, they were very Dadaistic and, and very striking. And so when I was a little kid, I saw the record, but I never listened to it. Um, by the time I got to college, I had met a lot of people that were f- fond of Zappa, and by then I was. And uh, that's when I started to come across people that were were listening to this stuff, and it interested me. Um, because I was a guitarist, and it was, it was very, very difficult, almost incomprehensible to me at first. But those kind of things draw me in. And a couple of years later, when I was living down in uh, Texas, I found a record store that uh, out in the middle of nowhere, just a pile of cinder blocks in the desert. And um, I went in there with a friend, and he pulled out this record, Shiny Beast, Bat Chain Puller, and said, you'd like this. And I looked at it, and I said, okay. It, you know, and I bought it. I, took it. I took it back to the barracks. I was in the service at the time. And um, it, 
that record was was a fabulous introduction for me for some reason. It just, it, it, for me, it fired on all cylinders. Some people that played on it said they feel it's sluggish, but I thought it was fabulous. And uh, I, I started gobbling up uh, Beefheart vinyl as, as much as I could find it. And fortunately, the guy that owned that record store was a big Beefheart fan. So he had bootlegs, he had all of the commercial records, including the ones that people don't like so much. Um, all kinds of good stuff. And so I loaded up on all of that stuff um, and really just just fell in love with a lot of it. And, um, you know, as I, as I continued to listen to, to, well, for one thing, let me say this. Crown Mask is a very difficult record to fathom, uh, most of it. And um, yet uh, the subsequent record, uh, Lick My Decals Off, Baby, for me, was kind of like um, a key that unlocked the puzzle of Trout Mask, and it might be because it was so well recorded. And um, after hearing Lick My Decals Off and going back and listening to Trout Mask, those songs were much more comprehensible to me. I could hear the, the polyrhythms and the polyphonics and the various time signatures that were colliding with one another and stuff. And, uh, you know, it... it, 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 it it, it still is a learning experience to go back and listen to any of this stuff um, that I've been listening to for 30-plus years. Um, but it was in the uh, early 1980s uh, that I just completely dove headlong um, into as much of that stuff as I could find. And then, you know, there have been side projects by most of the members. And um, I occasionally have conversations with uh, John French online, uh, I have a terrific respect for his drumming and uh, the sound of his drumming. And, um, yeah, so um, I, I continue to listen to this stuff. And um, back in the 90s, late 80s, early 90s, I used to be a music reviewer of independent music for several uh, music magazines. Uh, the first one was Op, and then Op ceased to be published in the the editorial staff split off and formed two other magazines, Option and Sound Choice, and I reviewed for both of those and some other ones and stuff. And I started to get, you know, Harco Road solo records and, and other stuff like that. And uh, the guy that used to be one of the editors of Spin Magazine, Byron Coley, one time sent me a box full of cassettes of outtakes and bootlegs and rehearsal stuff and with no vocals on it and just a bunch of great uh, deep glimpses into the, you know, the process mm -hmm. uh, of, a, of assembling this stuff. A lot of that stuff's come out on bootlegs since, or, you know, Grove Fins and some of these other things, Dust Sucker and so forth. These things cropped up and they were remastered and sounded a lot better, but hell, 30 years ago I was hearing a lot of the stuff that is just now becoming available to people. And um, it's brilliant. It's, it's extremely brilliant music. Uh, it, it'll either make you want to play slide guitar or make you want to never try to play slide guitar, depending <laughs> on where you're coming from. It, it's just lovely stuff. And if I can do a shout-out about Ben Waters, because I need to. Um, ben had a group called the Forefob K that recorded a whole mess of great music, extremely influenced by the Magic Band, even to the point of the band members having amusing pseudonyms and, and, uh, you know, the song titles had that kind of stark, uh, you know, noun, adjective, noun kind of stuff that Beefheart used to name his tunes. 
And, um, you know, on the grand scale of bands that were influenced by Beefheart, and you can hear it in the way they played, that group, the Forefathers, was one of them. And there's not that many. You know, people go, oh, the B-52s and the Public Image Limited were influenced by Beefheart. I'm like, I'm not hearing that. But Ben's band, you could hear it right out of the gate. Um, and he's also a hell of a painter. Uh, and now he does a lot of acoustic slide stuff that's very fascinating, too. So I got to brag on Ben if we're going to be talking about Beefheart, because he and I are brothers here with this stuff. He's He's really awesome. Ben is a fantastic guy. I was I was lucky enough to have him as a guest on a previous episode, and he has sent me all kinds of links to his his material. His um, there's some recordings of him doing uh, Beefheart covers on YouTube. He did the whole Messing with the Kid album, where he does uh, blues reinterpretations of the stuff from Spotlight Kid. Uh, he was kind enough to send me some material of him, the forefathers jamming with Mark Boston. Uh, yeah, he. Yeah, he's... I got that. That's a, that's a great disc. I oh, it's good that. stuff. Yeah. Oh man, good stuff. And you know, the, when when the uh, sort of the Drumbo led Magic Band with uh, I think Denny Wally and and uh, uh, Mark and uh, Gary Lucas, I think was in the first. Yeah, I think Gary. Yeah, there was a little bit of shifts around of membership, but uh, when they went over and did. Did the European tours? I know that Ben was at a number of those gigs. He may even have helped them book them. Um, but yeah, I've got a lot of those recordings too, and it's it's really remarkably good stuff. I mean, you know, anybody that says that Beefheart's music is accidental is out of their mind, and they're not listening hard enough because it isn't. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah, it's very, very, very thorough composed. Um, Shiny Beast was actually the first album of his that I got as well, and and I do think that's. That's probably a very good introduction to the variety of material that that Beefheart produced because it's got um, some of the more abrasive tracks like Batching Puller or or Floppy Boot Stomp, but it's it's also got you know Harry Irene and um, uh, Love Lies and these more melodic tracks. It it yeah, gives yeah exactly it gives you the the gamut of what he was capable of as a vocalist and and performer. I enjoy the real scattershot kind of stuff that, you know, where everybody's playing 110% burning calories all over the place, um, <laughs> you know, and just really being athletic about it. I, I remember one time watching uh, a Henry Kaiser tutorial video of some sort on internet one time. Yeah, and he talked about how one of the main things that one of the main takeaways that he got from being a big fan of, of those guys, you know, he used to go and hang out with them and shit when they were practicing, that they were able to just, just completely put their all into it. It was like a band of Joe Namath, you know what I mean? Just <laughs> just all of them trying to get a touchdown all the time. And, um, and I get that. There was a, a courage and a, uh, a profound confidence in one's ability um, that these these players uh, projected and absolutely yes and and that's that's something that's come up in in other episodes of this podcast when I've that I've discussed these songs with people that there's not a track on this album that is not played with absolute furious intensity that the band is is just leaving blood sweat and tears on the floor with every track playing with with you know, hitting the guitars as hard as they can, hitting the drums as hard as they can, just passionately blasting through 
this music, which is it makes it all the more remarkable that they most of this stuff, um, the studio stuff was recorded within the span of a day with, you know, maybe one or two takes of this material. They were so tightly honed and well rehearsed that they could they could pull off this music with that degree of intensity all in all in a extended stretch. Yeah, you remember that Beatles quote? I've got blisters on me fingers. Yep. Right? Well, with, with Beefheart's guys, if they weren't wearing finger picks, the bones in their fingers would have been sticking out. You know, they would have worn the ends off their fingertips trying to play that stuff because, you know? Yeah, Jeff Cotton said something about, I think it was in the Samuel Andreev interview, that they had to use really heavy strings because otherwise they would have literally pulled the strings off the guitars. For sure. They were playing strings that were fat, like lap steel guitar strings. But the thicker the string, the, the richer the vibration that comes out of it. But at a certain point, it becomes difficult to bend string. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, they, that, that's part of it. You know, I mean, God, the notes were so articulated and so biting and so piercing. And, Absolutely. Yeah. It's, I mean, even within the, the context of other Beefheart albums, as, as great as many of them are, this is such a statement of creativity and intent and intensity that it comes out that it's a double album of this really uncompromising material of, of a style that had never existed in rock music before. It just, it, it's boggles, it boggles the mind. One of the one of the things that I've just I've been trying to do is, with this podcast is just kind of pin down a little bit some of the things that make it so special and make it so remarkable. Yeah, a commitment to the unfathomable. Ooh, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. You know, I spent I spent eight years in the Navy. Uh, most of my twenties, I was in the Navy, and I lived over in South Korea and the Philippines and Japan and stuff. I'll tell you, Beefheart was a real solace to me because when when you're away from all all the people you know, you know, on the other side of the planet and stuff, mm-hmm. it's it's fun to have things that are engaging. And I found Beefheart literally three months before I was sent to Asia and gathered up all of that music and I was unfamiliar with most of it, you know, and then I went over for two years and lived in South Korea and wow. it, was, it was like listening to Beefheart all the time and uh, it really soaked in and it was it was fabulous it was that it really affected the, the stuff that i was recording back then i wanted to start doing really dense guitar-based music that you know like that somebody might someday go no he's not just messing around he did that on purpose you know right and uh, yeah it, it's, it's great stuff hey did it ever occur to you think about this um you interviewed a guy i think it was your first one who who uh, talk about Frownland, which is the first tune on the record, right? Mm-hmm. And um, if you think about it, um, Frownland is the perfect first song. Look at the, the beginning of the lyrics of Frownland, and then look at Veterans Day Poppy at the far end of the record there, and they bookend it emotionally. If you look at the lyrics, one song's talking about my smile is stuck, another one is saying... You know, I'm crying. You know, the record came out while Vietnam was raging, and everybody back then, I thought I was going to be drafted to Vietnam. It, it only The draft only ended when I was a sophomore in high school. I was absolutely certain I was going to be sent over there when I was a freshman in high school. And, um, you know, Beefheart and his band, they must have known scores of people that went over there. Oh, I'm sure. And what? That stuff pervaded everybody's music back then. I mean, some of the most uh, 
iconic protest songs since Woody Guthrie occurred in 1969, 1970, mm-hmm. you know? And I think Veterans Day Poppy is a timeless criticism um, of what, you know, of, of, of this whole profiteering and stuff like that. You know, I mean, I love the country and stuff, and I, I'm happy that I served in the Navy for eight years and stuff like that, but I sure don't like the way things are run and a lot of the reasons why we go out there and do stuff. And that song, for me, encapsulates it. It's so simple, and yet, you know, it basically says, no, I'm not, you know, I'm looking at your shirt, and you Veterans Day Poppy on there like you love the troops, but if you were a troop, you wouldn't be wearing that flower. Absolutely. And and before I forget, thank you very much for your service. Um, oh, well, I that. Yeah, thank you. And, but, yeah, the... the pay off my college debt. I'm being honest with you. I, I, I had I was up to my ass in college debt, and I, there, there was an uh, unemployment problem in the state of New York back then. You know, sure. here I am with a bachelor's degree in literature and, and sculpture, and I'm working, you know, I'm working second shift in the 24-hour diner, flipping eggs and bacon and shit. You know, I mean, it was really bad. Um, I'm I'm glad that it it worked out in a very in a very positive way for you. Um. The the veteran on Veterans yeah. Day Poppy the it's one of Van Vliet's more direct lyrics. There's not a lot of um you know, for so so frequently engaging in kind of surrealism and wordplay on this album. This this track is extremely direct and extremely emotional, and his vocal delivery is it sounds almost pained with by the as he's singing from the perspective of a parent who has lost their child to in in war and uh, yeah is decrying the emptiness of that gesture of the veterans day poppy the, the you know you can't grow another son um screaming empty she cries don't get me high I, you can only make me cry your veterans day poppy and then after this blast of him um you know raging these lyrics to this have this kind of melancholic instrumental coda uh with the guitarist just playing this um repeated rather sad figure to as the outro of the album it, it does feel like very much a, a statement on you know the last tracks of the record are always you know this is what we're leaving you with and it does feel like a statement on the on the state of the where the world was at that time and the people dying in vietnam and the the cruelty and absurdity of of war that song probably was whispered into his head by the same muse that said to uh Hendrix, you know, hey, do do something called machine gun, right? And you know, I mean, you know, Don had Don had a number of tunes where he was yelling at you because you you hadn't figured this out yet, you know, like <laughs> Smithsonian Institute Blues is yep. another example of one of the things where he's pointing at you like Uncle Sam in the poster, like, hey, you stupid ass, haven't you figured this out yet? And um, you know, that kind of sort of intellectual arrogance, of course, pervades his work, but he was very often right. He was talking about solar issues. Mm-hmm. And I've been posting Veterans Day Poppy on my Facebook page every Veterans Day for a number of years because I think it really just tells it very succinctly. You know, it starts off pretty chaotic. Um, it goes into some places that where you know you're like, Oh, this sounds like music I've heard before and then it goes it gets shattered again and that that long sustained groove that they get to at the end um, you know, it's 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 like 
it's like what R&B would sound like if your leg had just been blown off and you were hearing it in a radio nearby. And I mean, I don't know. That song on so many levels for me really, really just says, you know, corporate murder, not cool. <laughs> you know? And here's what it sounds like. Yeah, it's it's a really heavy song. That that long groove that they go into is brilliant. That's a that's a great place for a person to you know a guitarist to start to wrap, try to wrap their mind around the way that group plays because you can really hear what's going on in there. It's not really confusing, and it, and it repeats so many times that it becomes comprehensible by the end of the song to a first listener. I would say, you know, uh, you know, a lot of his music you might hear eight to 15 seconds of a phrase and then it's gone and you never hear it again. Yep. Like, what was that? You got to move the needle back. Um, and by the way, you mentioned Dr. Andrea. He's fabulous. Oh, he's I great. His videos. Yeah. He's such a, his questions are, are so good. They're not stupid. Um, but, uh, yeah, but that, that, that outgroove on Veterans Day Poppy is just, it's, pointy it remains mostly in the same key you know the beat is is rumbling like uh, oh man it, it, it's a really great last song you know as a guy that puts records out we always think about when, when we talk amongst our band members you know what do you want to put first what do you want to put last it's not about money it's about you know if this whole record is supposed to be a thing um What's the base? What's the best way to kind of bring the spoon towards the person's mouth at the beginning of it, and what's the best way to pull it back out of their mouth when you're done? And hopefully, it's tasting in between. And with that record, I think that Frownland and Veterans Day Poppy bookend that record so good. It's I don't know if it was random or what, but it's great. It's it's a really really smart choice across two LPs. One thing that has come up in, in in other episodes is the brilliance of the sequencing on the album. That it does it feels so beautifully put together in a way that is continually surprising and really emphasizes the degree of variety and musically and lyrically that that's being produced. And it gives this sense of this constant font of of creativity to go from Frownland to Dust Blows Forward and the Dust Blows Back, which is you know an acapella piece. And then into Dachau Blues is just, it's such a whiplash of the kind of music that you're hearing, what, what the lyrically is being presented to you. And it, it, it keeps you, it keeps you on your toes, but not in a negative way. It, it's just a constant sense of there's, there's more, there's more music to be had. There's more coming around the corner and you can never quite guess what the next track is going to be like or what it's going to present based on the previous track because it's constantly surprising you demands that you continue to pay attention. And right about when you're starting to go, oh man, I need a sandwich, they hit you with the blimp. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like reset. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Something completely other from the other tracks on the album. Absolutely. <laughs> oh man. So you were saying you were a, you are a guitarist. You are a, a multi-instrumentalist. Uh, you're currently playing in the Moon Men. Um so do you feel that that the guitar styling cuz the even with the different guitarists throughout the the magic band the the style of uh this kind of spiky slide based blues inspired but certainly not blues bound playing remained fairly consistent with 
amongst the different incarnations of the magic band do you do you feel that was an influence on your on your particular approach to the instrument yeah it was the the b sharp music i like the best and i'm not going to reiterate what i don't like and why because it'll just sound like a lot of other people Uh um you know but but when they were really in the zone let me put it that way there were some records where they were not in the zone it was a contractual obligation it was kind of it sounds half-hearted you know, it sounds like, you know, England Oates and John Ford Dan, almost. That shit from back in the 70s, you know, mm-hmm. like this sappy. But but the stuff that was really in the zone, um, for me, the way that I think it affected me was that, that I started I started on an acoustic guitar in 1973 after having spent a few years as a band student in school playing trombone and sousaphone. So I had a little bit of... I had some music smarts, a little bit, you know. Mm. And uh, when I started playing guitar, it was an acoustic guitar, and the guy that said, you know, you've got the hands to play guitar. Because I would listen to him play, and I'm like, oh, that's so cool. It sounds great. And he's like, you can do it. He got the hands to play, and he put a guitar in my hand, and he showed me how to finger pick. So I didn't start with a plectrum, for one thing. I started finger picking and using a lot of my right hand to get stuff out of the instrument. Mm-hmm. And when I started listening to Beefheart, um, the thing that one of the things that I really liked about it was that it sounded finger picky to me, for one thing, and also um, that the, the the attack, which we we've talked about in a lot of ways already, was very pianistic. Mm-hmm. Okay? It was like somebody, it was like the source tapes that these guys built the songs from that had been bashed out on a piano by somebody who was probably kind of like an ADD poster child. I can just imagine Don <laughs> sitting at a piano with his fucking hands going all over the place, you know, just beating the shit out of it, but really, really liking what he was doing. And then and, and saying, here, learn this. And it was pianistic. It was percussive, you know? And so my playing went from being, um, you know, folky mm-hmm. to percussive after I listened to Beefheart. I think that's the big shift that I got from him was, was something about articulation and like hitting the note like you were hitting it with a chopstick. I'm real grateful for that. I mean, I frankly, I, I owe a terrific gra- gra- debt of gratitude to the a number of the players that were in the Magic Band over the years, certainly the original guys. And I do mean like way back, okay, to, you know, your safe, safest milk gear. I wouldn't mm-hmm. have ever discovered Rock Cooter if it were not for Beefheart. And he, he, he makes me get tears in my eyes with his playing. You know what I mean? Like, Beefheart was a gate, you know, that just, just, it just opened up a lot of things to think about and things to want to maybe try to emulate to see whether or not I might get a little bit more extended technique than I already have by trying this thing that sounds so difficult, but, but why the hell not, you know? And, and so, um, yeah, so, so, you know, the Magic Band and, 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 and the things that Don was, you know, having them, having them do for me, um, you know, provided me with a lot of, um, aesthetic courage. Um, and I, you know, I'm really, I'm really grateful for that because, uh, you know, it's what other people like about how I play now. So it's, it's worked well. That's fantastic. You, you mentioned Ry Cooter and it, it's, it's probably worth mentioning because I don't think I actually brought it up on when we were talking on the, when I was talking on the Moonlight on Vermont episode, um, 
that the bassist on on Moonlight on Vermont and on this track is is Gary Marker, Gary Magic Marker, who, as you pointed out in an email exchange we had, played in the Rising Suns with with uh, Ry Cooter and I believe was it Taj Mahal on on lead yeah, vocals. I think, Jeff, yeah, Jay, I think Jeff Dan Davis was in the group too, and and I believe he's the guy that played the very awesome solo on um, Jackson Brown's Doctor My Eyes. Um, yeah, and and I actually lived with a woman who went to high school with Taj Mahal in Massachusetts before he was Taj Mahal, and heard all kinds of background about this cool guy. I, I encourage everybody who likes Beefheart to go find the Rising Suns. I encourage everybody that likes Little Feet to go find the Factory, that stuff that Zappa produced with a few of the members of what became Little Feet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know these seminal. I think of them as like source documents. You know, I, I like to ch- chase a rabbit down a trail and find out, you know, where's the beginning? Where's the, where does this thing nest? And, you know, you, with Beefheart is your, your previous interview that I listened to got the guys, you know, everybody says Howlin' Wolf was a profound influence, but of course, so was Muddy Waters. Sure. And, um, you know, Beefheart led me to Howlin' Wolf and getting to Howlin' Wolf all of a sudden, I'm hearing Hubert Sumlin. He too had a profound effect on the way I play. You know? Yeah, it's it, the the degree of of commitment and passion and in, instrumental. Um, I mean that this is a and the the subject of like technical skill has come up on a couple of different episodes, and the the amount of technique required to play this music is phenomenal, and yet this album never feels like. A show-offy demonstration of technique it never feels like someone going look what i can play it's everyone playing to their absolute the the peak of their abilities in order to make this otherworldly music really i don't think that there was a guitar solo as such except for on alice in borderland you might be able to point something out to me on a shitty one of his records that i don't listen to and say look that guy played a solo there but not that i'm aware of (laughs) but Elliot's solo is really good on it it's brilliant you know get me wrong you know if you like your fraternity of man and stuff early zap and stuff if you like trouble every day you gotta like Elliot. you know it is interesting that he was the one the one guitarist of the magic band that was that was singled out to have an, a piece that was essentially just an extended solo i wonder how that came about that he was the one who was um because i mean certainly harkle road and cotton were were more than than able to play i'm sure brilliant solos they're both ex- phenomenal guitarists but it, it's interesting that that uh ellie dingber is the one who was uh for for those who haven't heard it we're referring to allison blunderland on the spotlight kid um which was the i think immediately post lick my decals off album um which was uh, uh more more traditionally r&b based than than the uh the trout mask and lick my decals off material uh, and oh, for sure, it was way more. It, it it was more of an A B A B C A B kind of. You know, the song structures were a little more comprehensible on a lot of it. Um, you know, I I like uh, I like strictly personal. I don't think that the phasing is any different than what Tommy James and the Shondells were doing at the time. Every producer sure. thought that you know all these people are on acid. We better do something. You know, and. and that would listen to this stuff. Um, that record doesn't bother me, but it certainly hasn't aged well. You know what I mean? Um, you know, Safe as Milk, 
you can see why Lennon and McCartney went, whoa, when they heard that. You know? Yeah, exactly. They were, they've been running around playing all this American music for years, and here comes a guy who's American who's like, yeah, I got this down. I'm going to do this with it rather than just, you know, play it right. You know, it's no wonder. I've seen a picture of, I think it was Lennon's refrigerator had a safest milk sticker on it. Yeah, I've seen that too. Like, yeah. Yeah, and maybe maybe the White Album may not have sounded like it does without that experience having happened first. You ever think about that? That's interesting. Yeah, I know. I wonder if your blues had... that cut and paste and collagey stuff that the Beatles were doing. Oh, sure, has yeah. been done. I uh, I can certainly see where you're coming from with that and with the the more experimental edge of of what they were doing. Uh, it's it's funny that you know if all the Magic Band had ever produced was Safe as Milk. Um, I think they'd still have this uh, a reputation as one of the most cutting edge groups of that that era. I mean, you hear something like Electricity or the the um, the cover of Grown So Ugly, and it's just there was nothing else that sounded like that being produced at that time. Yeah, and then and then check this out, and then you see them playing Electricity on the beach in France, and it's spot on. Yeah. And that's the Trump mask guys playing it. And it's like, whoa, you know, because that was the song that jumped out at people on that record, I think. I think Electricity was the one that really leapt off of Safe as Milk as something that was really quite new. And um, and then you see them able to do it. God, you know, half the stuff that we grew up hearing coming out of our car radio is you got to go listen to a Rick Beato video in order to like it again because he'll analyze it and say, no, it's really good. I know you heard it a million times, but it's a great tune. You know, and, and fortunately, we weren't bombarded with a lot of beef heart, and it became a labor of love to really figure it out and, and get in there and we'll find what to like about it. Yeah, it, it requires the active participation of the listener. You you don't uh, for the stuff like Trout Mask anyway. Yeah, it's uh, I I on um, nowadays there well, of course no one's going anywhere right now because we're recording this during the quarantine. But uh, when I would go to bars um, and they'd have the kind of jukeboxes that allow you to to download music from the internet, so it's not just restricted to what's on the jukebox. I always enjoyed um, somewhat passive aggressively. I will admit playing Captain Beefheart. In, in a bar just to see if I, if anyone anyone was paying any attention or anyone got any reactions. There was, normally wasn't much available from Trout Mask, but uh, even electricity would, would get some strange looks at the jukebox. <laughs> yeah, that, that voice, that voice. It's it something comes else. out like, I'm here, you know? <laughs> yeah, you cannot, you can't, um, the, the phenomenal power of his voice is, is something that it cannot be denied. When you listen to that stuff when they were 17, you know, years old, just screwing around, eating stale biscuits or whatever the hell it was that Don's dad sold, you know, um, he, when he opened his mouth, he was already there. The same voice was coming out in 1981, 20 years later. Yep. You know? Yeah. Yep. It was his really, greatest really, gift. You know, same I here? really, really loved his art. It's, it, it hits me. It hits me so strongly. Uh, you know, I like Franz Klein and a lot of your um, abstract expressionists, and and that's another area where he was very, very consistently super strong um, visually. And one can only imagine, um, you know, the kind of pictures that were in his head when he was writing things like uh, Click Clack or or Bat Chain Puller. Those are my two favorite tunes by Beefheart and the Magic Band. And, Two of my favorites um, as well. Oh, 
gush, you know, and that 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 re- that harmonica, that huffing harmonica thing, which sounds like it's in a looper that he does in Bat Chain Fuller. Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. That and it just goes through the whole song. That was the reason I wanted a looper. Think about that. <laughs> Something that was recorded that long ago made me, when I heard about looping technology, I thought, oh, I could do that with this. And, and I mean, it wasn't even, it wasn't even thought of yet when he was doing that stuff. But what he did was basically produce a sound that sounded just like what you can do cleverly with a looper when you would like to use it as an intelligent metronome that isn't just using beat, but it's also using harmony. If you, I think it was, um, Tom Waits who said something like, once you've heard Beefheart, you never get them out of your clothes. And like it stains. And I, I like that analogy. You know something? When, when he put out his, um, Swordfish Trombones record, one of my first thoughts as the first song was playing when I bought it was, he's been listening to Beefheart. Yep. Honestly, yeah. And, and everything he's done since, I think, owes a debt to something that, that, that he may have enjoyed from a Beefheart record. There's it definitely an influence, yeah. Tiny beats, you know, because you listen to the way that Tom Waits' tunes swing, they swing like floppy boots stomp, man. They do. That, I know, you I know? can totally hear that, yeah. Well, that that is a good entry point to to discussing the, the music that you have made and, and whatever you're you're making now. Do you have... Um, uh, I, you sent me a link to a, a band camp. Do you have what what projects do you have active? And if someone wanted to jump into your music, what what's where would you tell them to start? Well, that bhhstuff.bandcamp.com is probably as good a place as any to jump in. Um, I got uh, I've digitized things going hell all the way back to 1979. There, if you looked at it, there's a lot, um, and you'll see various. You know, when you start to see the same group occurring, you'll see that there was a period maybe for five or six years where I was in a particular band and we put out a lot of stuff. You know, in the 90s, it was a group called Hip Bone up in Massachusetts before I moved down here. And uh, in the early, early 90s, it was a group called Maximum Love Vibes that was we recorded on an island off the coast of Maine. Um, but now, um, in retirement, um, Moon Men is, is one of my big things. We're, we're working on our fifth record. It's instrumental music. It, it draws from all of our collective influences. And so, you know, some of the tunes, like on the new record that we're working on right now, it's actually been sent off for duplication as of this morning, I found out. Um, there's a number of tunes on there that, that are loaded with slide guitar. Nice. And there are other tunes on there that sound like Henry Cow outtakes. I mean, uh, we don't, we, we completely defy genre. What's one of the things I really like about Moon Men is that each tune becomes a singular thing that we all, you know, really just dive into that thing and, and get it to a place where we, we democratically agree that it has reached its best version of itself. That's how we work. And so Moon Men is a, is a big deal for me. You know how on Facebook you just by happenstance meet somebody that, whose music you've liked for a long time and you're like, wow, this is a nice guy and he's talking to me or this woman is really interesting and she's like, wants to talk about stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's how I met Dave Newhouse. 
who used to play in the muffins and you know they they played they were the backing band on side one of the sides of Fred Frith's famous gravity record and he was a founding member of Skeleton Crew and it's just done a bunch of really cool stuff over the years and I liked his music 30 years ago and didn't know who the hell he was but we met each other on Facebook and learned that we were both middle school English teachers oh, and we wow. both had a kid that was in the military and we had a lot in common we got the same wedding anniversary for crying out loud and we we started recording some stuff uh in 2005 together um because i had had this dream if if i may wax poetic here go for it i had a dream that me and this is after i become facebook friends with these guys right but we've never done any collaboration i had a dream that dave newhouse and Nick Dukowski from the band Dr. Nerve and a bunch of other interesting things. He was in the Fred Frith Guitar Quartet and yada yada. Um, that he and those two guys and me were loading musical instruments in real bizarre cubist-looking cases out of a <laughs> high school into a fire truck, and we were going to go to a... It was, in fact, it was the fire truck from Francois Truffaut's uh, Fahrenheit 451. But anyway, and we were going to go to a studio, and we were going to do a new version. We are going to record a new version of a song that I used to play with a group called The Bond way back in 1981, and it was a song called Pendulous, and it was about, well, it was about breasts, basically. But anyway, it was, it was an instrumental. And I told these two guys on Facebook, I had a dream last night, you guys were in it, here it is. And both of them, within a day of each other, said, let's record it. <laughs> and I said, okay, shit, two guys that I really admire want to play, record something with me. And so we we did a re-recording of Pendulous, and it ended up on this uh, really elaborate project I put out called Tick Treatment. And um, Tick Treatment was a cloth bag with a tick stamp on the front of it, and uh, it tied shut. And when you opened it up, there was like a, 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 a huge poem in a book. There were two CDs. There were trading cards. There was like all this wacky shit in there, like back in the day when records were fun. We recorded the tune, and we were real happy with it, and they ended up playing on a couple more uh, songs on that particular record, and that led to subsequent uh, collaboration between us. Um, Dave and I, uh, and a French lady, a singer named Carla Duratz, did a record together called Duratz, and she was the lyricist and the singer on that record, and that thing ended up getting in the hands of people like Robert Wyatt and Lawrence, Co Lawrence Cowboy Curtis Fishburne, and they dug it. And, um, you know, uh, we did that, and Moon Men's going on, and me and Dave Newhouse are working on a duet record together right now, and, oh, I don't know, I've got a lot of things going on. Yeah, there's some really, there, there, there's a beautiful uh, international group of people right now, older people, people that are 50 and older, who've been doing music for decades right now and were unaware of each other, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And, and because of social networking, we, we've, been, we've been put into each other's laps and people are finding things to like that they were never aware of that are really outside of their wheelhouse, but they like it. And, and, and there are some Oh, absolutely astonishing um, collaborations happening uh, in in studios all around the world right now where people that weren't working together and didn't know each other, you know, as recently as 15 years ago, are, are good friends and composing together and doing this really incredible stuff that brings these disparate, you know, 
influences and 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 uh, proficiencies uh, together. You know, when you when, you know, like like to take for example, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Guy Seegers, but he played bass in Universe Zero and Présent, these two great bands from Belgium, and. God, he's now, you know, he's now interacting with people that were four-track cassette artists back when his band was was putting out their really important stuff as part of a uh, rock and opposition movement over there in in Europe and stuff. And mm-hmm. and it, like I said, all of these 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 unintentional walls that separated people because people were pigeonholed, you know. People, people's work was always pigeonholed. Everybody likes a genre. It's easier to sell a genre, and you know, it, it's gone away. Uh, the, the digital ability to exchange tracks and create new music without having to be physically in the same place as another person is like a gift from God, if you believe in God. And, and it, you know, it's amazing the some of the stuff that's out there. There's too much to listen to. There's too much to listen to in a lifetime right now of this really new, incredible music where, you know, you know, like Hal McGee in Gainesville, Florida, who's been producing incredible experimental music for the last 40 years. You know, he, he he's in contact now with people that were putting vinyl out on, you know, ECM and right. <laughs> record, records and things. And, and these people were unaware of each other. And so it's a cool time. It's a cool time. And the kind of people that are really singular and different and unique in the way that Beefheart and his bands were are meeting each other and wanting to be in relationship with someone that has something to learn and something to teach and stuff. And it's, it's a cool time, man. It's a really cool time to be playing music and being alive, despite all, despite all of the challenges that we face right now in 2020. Um, you know, some of these technological tools allow us to be really close to people we care about that we like to work with. It's, it's, it's great. It's fantastic, you know? I, I think on that note of new frontiers in unbridled creativity is possibly the most perfect way to bring this podcast discussing this album of unbridled creativity to a close. Uh, Darren always rates the tracks. As I've said on every episode, every single track is five out of five for me because they cannot be compared to anything else. I, I will give you, it, it, um, Brett, if you'd like to rate the track, you're welcome to. You certainly don't have to. And if you have any closing thoughts or anything uh, additional that you'd like to plug um, before uh, we, we wrap up the show, the floor is yours. Well, I just appreciate that you called me up and were willing to listen to my thoughts on this. And I'm also thankful that Ben Waters pointed me in your direction. You know, thanks a lot. This has been really, really fun. And I'm looking forward to hearing what it sounds like after you hit it with the scissors and stuff, you know? (laughs) Well, uh, for those of you listening, uh, if you want to follow Track by Track on Twitter, we are at underscore Track by Track. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I am at Joel A. Bakker. That's B-A-K-K-E-R. Uh, I am at the same handle on Instagram. Um, we will make sure that the links to uh, Mr. Hart's material is included in the uh, in the episode data here, so you can go and check out his music. Uh, Brett, thank you again so much for participating. Oh, thank you, Pat. It's been great fun. And thanks for listening. <laughs>